The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son, for your spirit, for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being the light of the world. Thank you for opening our eyes to our personal darkness, our, our corporate human darkness. That, uh, but you didn't leave us with just an awareness of our sin. You, you, you brought us into our sin in your own self-sacrifice. You died in our place so that we could be liberated to righteousness and into the presence of our Father. So, Daddy, today we ask that you would minister to these lives, that you would be with Daisy and her family, that you would bring comfort, and that you would bring just a, a sense of your presence and power to see them through this moment. Lord, I pray, Father, that you'd be with Kathy Howell and Robert, that you would be with um, Miss Betty and Skip, that you'd be with Ashley and Kyle. Father, that you would, we just praise you for what you're doing in many lives. We just thank you for the work that you're doing. We acknowledge that you're the healer. We acknowledge that you are, the, you are our living hope, Lord Jesus. We thank you for just opening our eyes so that we could see. And uh, pray that you give us courage to confess and repent, to walk away from these things that our flesh so longs for. And yet your spirit causes us to turn our back on and to long for your will and way to be realized. Please, Father, I pray in this moment that you would open our minds and hearts to this, your word, that you would plant your good seed in us so that we might bear fruit, that we wouldn't just know this, but we would live it. And Father, I pray that uh, this, is a, this is a precious topic. I pray that you would comfort hearts. I pray that you would quicken our minds to the understanding we're so desperate for. And we just thank you for your mercy and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to share a celebration with the church family um, before we dive in. Um, uh, Brandon is getting married uh, next Saturday. So, um, so I'm having the privilege to go up with a bunch of sweet folks over here. And we're heading up on Thursday to, uh, to be a part of Brandon and Daisy's wedding so be in prayer for them uh, as, we, uh, as we get to celebrate God's covenantal work and uh, his love and faithfulness in their lives and in their marriage. All right, so chapter 9, uh, we are looking at a man that is sitting on the, on the roadside here. Um, later on, we find out in his hometown, um, and he is begging. Uh, we, we, we come to realize, based on verse 14, which we won't get to today, we're just doing 1 to 12, that this is on a Sabbath. We know that none of that is happenstance, that God does all of this intentionally, I believe, to create not confusion or conflict, but to create a conversation. Uh, because what we desperately need, we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, and we're so desperate to not only see and understand and know the very word of God to, to, to confront our lives and then transform them. And so um, we open this, this, I'm going to read for you verses 1 to 12. So if you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, and Bibles in the seats in front of you, 
please make them their own. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen as well. So here we are, chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 12. As he passed by, he being Jesus, he saw a man, we find out from verse 8, begging um, his only means for income. And his disciples asked, by who sinned, this man or that he was born Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work, listen to what he says here, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So one of the things seen throughout the Gospel of John is that there are these signposts. There are these, in other Gospels, or they're referred to as miracles. Uh, John clearly these miracles as signs of Jesus. The reference for the signposts is the Testament. It's the things that they were told. It's interesting, though, that these seas that are basically lawyers of the Old Testament, and they knew it like the back of their hand, they, without the light of the world illuminating their hearts and minds and quickening their understanding, they were at odds with Jesus. And so their darkness was apparent. Their spiritual blindness, as we'll look at next week, was obvious. And yet it wasn't obvious to them. So Jesus performed miracles, or as John calls them, signs, which I believe for three distinct reasons. And we see that depicted here in this text. It says, you know, number one, maybe because we know Jesus would get off of a boat after being, it, we, it tells us he was tired and exhausted, seeking rest, seeking refuge with the Father, knowing that that's our only f source of rest. Um, and, uh, and, and coming to a crowd of people, it would. Do you remember what it would say? Jesus was filled with compassion, right? And he would, in the midst of his weariness, he would minister to them. So one of the things, and and part of those ministering experiences were were miracles. And so we we can we can conclude three things here, distinct reasons why Jesus performed miracles. One, compassion he had for human need. Number two, to illustrate a spiritual truth or to create a conversation. Jesus would do these, these moments, these miracles, these signs, 
in order to create a conversation or to illustrate a spiritual truth or both. And that's definitely this story illustrates the spiritual truth of Jesus being the light of the world. We too are born spiritually blind. Every one of us spiritually blind and need the gift of sight that only the light of the world can provide. The light of the world becomes our light when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And then the conclusion that we've made throughout our journey through the gospel of John is this. Um, the, and probably the most important reason that Jesus continues to do these miracles, which is, is authenticated by Jesus' own words. And I'm going to use a different semantical word today to, to continue to illustrate this. These, these signs were his credentials. They were his credentials. So when you meet somebody and you go, you know, who are you? Or, what, you know, sometimes when you're wanting to do uh, intimate relationship or business with someone, you want to know what their credentials are. And Jesus, using the Old Testament prophets who were constantly speaking, over 330 prophecies in the Old Testament point to the Messiahship or the deity of the Son of Man, Son of God, the one that would come, the one that would bring the day into our darkness, as it talks about. And so one of the things that we see here is that Jesus is, and, and, and maybe you remember this, Jesus, um, remember John the Baptist, you know, born with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you would imagine if anybody had convincing faith in their lifetime, it'd be John. Yet he finds himself in a very dark place, right? He's in prison, uh, inherited, seeking his demise, doesn't even know it yet. But he sends one of his, or some of his disciples to Jesus, and they actually see and hear what Jesus is doing. And, uh, and the question they ask Jesus directly from John the Baptist's mouth is, are you the one? Now, can you imagine this? This is, th- this is almost encouraging to us that, that, you know, someone like John the Baptist, moments where he struggled and doubted, you know, the one that pointed at the Lord Jesus Christ and said, see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, uh, and yet he sends his disciples to ask the question, are you the one or should we expect another? And I want you to read for you in Matthew 11, speaking of Jesus' credentials through the, 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 uh, the miracles, specific here to the healing of a blind man. He says in Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6, it says, And Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So interesting, in that, in that list, you know, it doesn't include, and in the, the captives are set free for John's benefit, but it talks about in Isaiah, this is, he's referencing Isaiah 35, and he's talking about the credentials of the Messiah. And he is saying, yes, I am he. So my point being that these signs are definitely meant to be signposts that point to his deity. So speaking of, um, of blindness, um, 3% of Americans 40 years old and older are legally blind or visually impaired. Um, 3% doesn't sound like much, but when we, when, we, when we talk numbers here, that's 3.4 million people. 
And this happens, legal blindness or visually impaired or progressive blindness, happens in the U.S. about every 20 minutes as far as diagnosis. Yet the man that we meet in this chapter is born blind. He was never able, able to witness the majesty of God or his creation or see the faces of his loved ones. When Jesus arrived on the scene, everything changes for this man. His eyes are open eventually to the ultimate truth, which was Jesus himself. So the miracle, the, great, the greatest miracle was not the opening of his eyes, but of his heart to Jesus. And this is exactly what these miracles are meant to do, is to point to the one that ultimately wants to invade our lives with his marvelous light and overcome our darkness. Because isn't it, isn't it amazing that the definition of darkness is the absence of light? And as Jesus moves into our darkness and, uh, and brings a sense of conviction and we move to a place of repentance and confession, we are healed through this experience with the, with the light of the world. And so, um, interesting. So the disciples did not look. And this is, this, is, this is challenging. Think about this. The disciples did not look at the man as an object of mercy as Jesus did, but rather for a theological... Do you see that? We'll look at that here in a minute again. But rather than seeing him as an object, uh, someone to be, to be, to show compassion to, they they use his plight as a conversation about theological issues. In this case, sin. It is much easier to discuss the effects of sin than to minister to a person. So let's look at verse one. It says, "As he he being Jesus passed by." We know based on verse fourteen that it's Saturday because it's daytime and, that's th- that, and it's the Sabbath. Um, and uh, we also know that he's begging here. Um, and sadly enough, if we think about these scenarios, oftentimes these folks become a fixture on the... You ever notice as you pass by things on a regular basis, after a while you don't even notice them anymore. And do you think that he might have felt some of that? And one of the things that I absolutely love about verse 1, I mean, I love it, is it says, and as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus saw him. God sees us. You know, back in the Old Testament, there was a, an occasion where Hagar is dismissed by his, her, his, their, her mistress, uh, um, Sarah, and uh, she's sent off into the desert with her son, and her son is 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 so parched and so f- it's such it has no water, and he's about to die. And in the midst of all of this, God comes to Hagar and reveals His knowledge of her, how much He is intimate with her circumstances, and uh, He she actually names God the one, the God who sees me, right? Elroy, right? The God who sees me. Guys, let me tell you, let me tell you why that's comforting. And this is, this is, this is rich. God sees you and loves you perfectly. God sees you, all of it, all of it. Because do you think that God was surprised? Do you think that Jesus was kind of like, didn't realize how dark it was down here? Do you think when he came to be the light of the world, he's like, man, it's really bad going on. No, he wasn't surprised by your sin, your failure, your brokenness. He's, 
He, it, none of that is a surprise to him, and yet he loved you enough to pursue you to the point of self giving his own life to die in your stead so that you might be ransomed and rescued from your fallen state, separated from God, now reconciled. Not in part, but in, like fully reconciled so that we might be ministers of reconciliation to those that others might be reconciled, that we get to go around handing out invitations to being children of God. You know, this is an awesome thing. But here we see, here the boys are walking by wanting to have a conversation about who sinned. In other words, who, who, who's to blame for this? If we really want to make it layman's terms, who's to blame for this guy's blindness? Him, his sin, his parents? Who's to blame? Like this, this is a universal question that's still asked today, Right? Why do good people suffer? What is the origin of sin? Why, why is there sin? How could babies be born this way? Right? That, those, are, those are hard and painful questions. But Jesus sees it. Jesus is intimate with it. And Jesus embraces the opportunity in the moment. And I don't think that this, this poor blind beggar is even asking for it. Why? Because if you read later in chapter 9... He says, he says these words, when ever has anybody who was blind from birth been healed? He had resigned to this status, but Jesus, Jesus wanted more for him than he even wanted for himself. Isn't that, isn't that a good God? Isn't that a glorious God that wants to heal us when we don't even want to be healed? That pursues us to heal us when we're not even in a posture of wanting him or knowing or loving him, please know, listen, please know this morning, God loves you. God pursues you with, with, he is, but let me, let me explain this. Jesus, God is still just. God still punishes sin to its full extent. But you know what he did? He poured out his total wrath on his own son in your stead. And when you accept that Jesus did that with full understanding of all the implications, the separation he would experience so that you would be reconciled, when you fully believe and receive and accept that, that he died in your place, but he didn't stay dead because he had no sin of his own and he rose from that grave, victory over sin and death. And when you own that, when you, when you treasure that, when you, when you receive and acknowledge that for yourself, letting the light of the world shine into your darkness, acknowledging your darkness and claiming that the, the atoning work of the cross quenches your sin debt, there is freedom. There is healing, perfect in its expression, not in part, but in whole. Like he wants to fully, he fully heals us and then the Holy Spirit is convincing us of this, of this full work that's already been accomplished. Guys, later in our time together t- this morning, we're going to, be invited to a table that Jesus invited us to almost 2,000 years ago and said as often as we gather, we should come and be reminded of his love, his sacrificial love for us, that he died. And, and somebody, you know, listen, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like that's what our, that's what our sin deserves. So Jesus saw him. In ancient cultures, as in many modern cultures, blind people had no choice but to be beggars. We have a tendency not to see those who are disabled or to treat them in ways 
that emphasize or trivialize their disadvantage. For instance, blind people are often treated as if they can't hear either, which is exactly what the disciples did on this occasion. Do they think that just because he was blind, they didn't hear these, and, and I'm sure it wasn't the first time, these, these hurtful words? Who sinned? Who's to blame for this? His sin? His parents? People appreciate being genuinely cared for, don't you? But, but, but resent being treated as a case or a problem or curiosity. When dealing with people who are suffering or disabled, we must try to empathize Thank you, with them. We should, always, we should always strive to treat others in the same way we would want to be treated if we were in their situation or the situation was reversed. It just reminds me of the golden rule, right? right? The golden rule says in Matthew 7, verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So the golden rule, right, that, that as we look at others, that we would want to do for them what we wish others would do for us if in the similar circumstance. Wouldn't that change the way that we see and respond to those that are in need? Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Man, the blame game continues, doesn't it? Started in the garden. We just want to be able to hang it on somebody, right? And Jesus said, hang it on me, right? That's what he did, right? But, but we, just, we just want to be able to put the blame somewhere. And, um, and so some thoughts on this. The disciples were convinced that this man's sin or his parents' sin was the cause of his disability. Well, this, this all stems out of Exodus 34, 7. And it's a misconception based on this, this text that, that really is addressed in the earliest book in the Old Testament. Does anybody know what the earliest, and I'll help you, it's not Genesis, right? Job, right? So the book of Job was the earliest text as far as chronology because Moses wrote the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But guys, um, we, we, we must acknowledge that the thematic element of the book of Job is that not all suffering is due to sin. Right? Right? Because did not Job's friends, did God not look very poorly on them by their response to say, Job, obviously you've sinned. Look at your suffering. Look at what you're going through. Look what your losses are. You sin. Just confess your sin, Job. And, and Job, was, was, was he comforted by this? Was he loved by this? Absolutely not, right? Because this was not the case. And so one of the conclusions, but let me ask another question on the other side of this. Do we reap what we sow? Do, does sin bring suffering? Yes, Right? We, we, we read earlier the, the man that was healed at Bethesda, right? He said, Jesus finds him later in the temple and he says, look, go and sin no more. That what? That something worse might happen to you, right? So, but here's the problem. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know why people are suffering. We don't know why we're suffering at times. We don't know. We can't explain why 
folks are born with disabilities. Tragic as that is, hard for parents to to process and to deal with. Would, Would swap places with them in a second. And this is exactly the heart of God. And here in the text, Jesus says, that's not the reason, guys. Let me tell you what the reason is. We're going to get to that. Listen to this. Many people around the world believe that suffering results from sin. People tend to believe that displeasing God leads to punishment. Therefore, they assume that whenever a person seems to be undergoing punishment, there is a reason to suspect wrongdoing. This misconception is addressed, as I mentioned, in the earliest book of the Bible. So here's the thing. Um, I want to reinforce this. If you're a believer here today and God's spirit dwells in you because you've confessed Jesus as Lord, believe that he rose from the dead, you've acknowledged that his payment was made for your sin and, uh, and you've been liberated, um, I, I want to remind you of a text that I, that I go to a lot as the enemy. What is, the, what is one of the enemy's agendas within the, within the church? Is He's the accuser of the brethren. He is constantly trying to undermine your joy, steal, kill, and destroy. He's a roaring lion seeking to devour. He has this agenda, but here's the deal. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus, he's a defeated foe. We have to understand that we are more than conquerors in Christ. You know, these, these things, that light completely repels the darkness. James tells us, submit to God, right? Resist the devil and he will, right? That's what it says. Draw near to God and, I will, and he will draw near to us. And so what, what we must understand, and this, this is the verse I want to I speak to. It says to us in Peter, it says this, perfect love casts out all, Chris, fear. Because fear has to... What is our greatest fear of humanity? Because fear has to do with eternal punishment. That's what it says. Perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. So here's the good news, guys. If Jesus has taken your punishment for you and you've received him as Savior and Lord, you will never, ever be punished again for your sins, past, present, or future. You will be disciplined as a child that's loved if you go astray and, and wander outside of an abiding relationship and fellowship with him. But that's what a loving father does. But, but please hear me. Those that are in Christ will never be punished because Jesus, listen, he, did, he, did, he, did he take part of it or did he pay it all in full? It's a total work. And so here's the thing. Whenever you start doubting, or you start, the enemy starts saying, oh, you're getting punished here. Lie, lie, lie. I want you to remember this because this is what the text is telling us. What we need to be is perfected in love in that moment, right? Perfect love casts out all fear, right? So we need to be reminded how perfect God's love is towards us. We need to come to the table again and be reminded that Christ willingly sacrificed for your sin debt and died in your place, that the light of the world came in and shone into your darkness. And because he, he, he revealed your sin, you acknowledged it. He accepted it as his own pain, penalty and paid it in full. This is, guys, this is what grace is. It's unmerited favor. You did nothing to deserve God's love. So it's not something that's fickle in your life. It doesn't come and go based on what you do or don't do. His love is, is forever. It's unchanging. Uh, Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He does, he's not fickle. He's not frail. He doesn't run out on us. He's not like us. He's wholly other. And it's a glo- that's glorious good news. Because here's the good news. As we become perfected in love, we are convinced that the cross has paid my sin debt perfectly. And, and listen, I, I want to I remind us of this as well. In order for God to put his spirit in us, we have to be holy. God's spirit does not abide in anything other than holiness. And so try to just contemplate that for a moment, that that is the full expression of the cross and its expression and its love and its demonstration over your life. The problem is we don't believe because we keep looking at what I've done rather than what he's done, right? Every time the enemy starts talking about what you did or what, you, what you're doing or what you, you know, all of this, and, it's, and, and he, you know, he won't only point to your sin, he'll point to your successes too to try to incorporate some pride into your life because he knows what pride brings, the fall, right? And so, guys, please understand, you are perfectly loved. And God wants you to believe and acknowledge and receive and understand. Like even in, in, uh, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, there are cards out there on the foyer table. Please pick one up. This is, our, this is our annual prayer for our church. And basically, it's Paul praying for the church in Ephesus that they would be perfect in their understanding of his love and its expanse, its depth, its persistence, it's complete and total work in our life. And that's what we should pray for for one another because if we're perfected in love, we're fully aware of this glorious work that Jesus has done for us. So all physical problems are a result of our fall in Adam. We've got to go back to original sin. For this disobedience brought sin and death into the world. If you want to hang it on anything, let the word of God be the one that kind of says this is where it comes down to. It comes down to There was one command given, and that command was broken. And the consequence for breaking that command was clearly given before it was broken. Do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, where the tree of life was also, by the way, right? Because on that day, the NIV says, when you eat of it, Jesus was, I mean, God was not ignorant to the fact that we would, right? When you eat of it, you will surely die spiritually, and then that obviously manifests itself physically. So in order to illustrate the point that all physical problems are the result of, of our fallen Adam, look at Romans five twelve with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death, death through sin, because the wages of sin is death. And so death spread to all men. Don't miss this because all sinned. Guys, if you really, I think this is an important thing. We see this very clearly in James We see this clearly in Paul's teachings. You know, if you want to find out, you know, who is responsible for your separation, we can, yeah, we can go back to the original sin. We can go back to Adam, but we have to understand that it's our desires that wage war and that want its will to be realized in our life. And, but the thing is, God has put his spirit in us so that like Romans 8 says, we could be controlled by his spirit and not the flesh. But you, you've, got, you've got choices all the time. And, you know, here's the thing. There's a greater power. But I believe, my, my conviction is that we must, we must do what God's word says in order to experience not only understanding as an expression of faith, but, but to experience the fruit 
of obedience that comes healing or whatever it is. And we see it in this text. I'm going to point it out right now and you'll see it later. It's, what did Jesus tell him to do? I mean, like, come on here for just a moment. I want you to imagine you're in this guy's shoes, right? Guy shows up. Maybe you've heard about him. Pretty notorious guy, Jesus. And all of a sudden, he's talking with his disciples. All of this, keep in mind, he doesn't know Jesus by sight, just by, at this point, just by his voice. And Jesus, I imagine Jesus kneeling down, you know, getting eye to eye with him. And uh, after making his statement here that we're getting to in a moment, he spits on the ground. Now, keep in mind, the only other time that he, that he spits at all is um, God spits. I just throw that out there. Um, but the only time that we see that is in the Gospel of Mark uh, when he heals a blind man and a deaf and dumb man um, in Decapolis and in Bethsaida. But in no other Gospel do we see this, and this is very unique to John, is that where he makes the mud... And then I love that the ESV says, anoints his eyes. But then what does he tell him to do? Go and wash in a specific pool called the scent pool, right? But it's interesting. What does he do? He goes. And every time we see this in scripture where Jesus gives a command and they obey it, fruit. Jesus gives a command and they obey it, blessing, right? Luke chapter 15, it says, you know, we fished all night, but because you said so, Lord, we will go. When they had done so, boats filled with fish. Like, and this is on and on and on in the scriptures. It's obedience to his word that he wants, not adherence, not just knowledge of his word, but, you know, we deceive ourselves, James 1.22 says, if we don't apply the very word in our living. That's how we build our house upon the rock. Okay, so... Moving on, to blame a specific disability or a specific sin committed by a specific person is certainly beyond any man's ability or authority. Only God knows why babies are born with handicaps. And only God can turn those handicaps into something that will bring good and glory to his name. That's what Warren Wiensbe says. And I thought that was, that was excellent. We, we shouldn't... It's a form of judgment, isn't it? Job's friends were condemned for it. That we would go out and listen, I want you to, listen, we should not be going around going, man, I wonder what he did. <laughs> Must have been pretty bad. You know, like, we, it's a form of judgment is what it is. But here's the other thing. The enemy loves for us to do this to ourselves through self-talk. He just uses our voice in our own head, but it's him. Right? And we have to be able to take every thought captive. Right? Philippians 4, 8 says, Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. Like as if that's the filter of our thoughts. Right? Let God's word determine what's your decisions, what's your thoughts, what's your thinking. You know, uh, Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to the patterns of this world. Well, how do, we, how do we not conform to the patterns of this world? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? God's word. Jesus said it. John 15, 3 says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Ephesians 5 says that, the, that, that, that Jesus cleanses his bride by the washing of the word. Right? Like this is, this is the cleansing agent. This is spiritual Ajax right, for our minds. And it gets all of that junk and garbage out of our heads. We need, to, we need to let the truth set us free. Commentary, I liked this. It says this, 
In Jewish culture, many believe that all calamities and suffering resulted from sin. But this man suffered so that God could be glorified, is what we read next. We live in a fallen world where good behavior is not always rewarded and bad behavior not always punished. Therefore, innocent people sometimes suffer. If God removes suffering whenever we asked, we would follow him for comfort and convenience, not out of love and devotion. Regardless of the reasons for our suffering, Jesus has the power to help us deal with it. When we suffer from a disease, a tragedy, a disability, we should not ask, why did this happen to me? Or what did I do wrong? Instead, we should ask God to give us strength for the trial and a clear perspective on what is happening. I think that's solid. The disciples were thinking about what caused the blindness. Jesus shifted their attention away from the cause to the purpose, to the purpose. Jesus demonstrated God's power by healing the man. So here's the challenge. Instead of worrying about the cause of our problems, we should instead find out how God could use our problems to demonstrate his power. This is what Jesus asked. Listen to verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Jesus is not saying these guys were sinless. That's not his point, for sure. But that because you're thinking wrongly, he says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the NIV says, might be displayed in his life. That the works of God might be displayed in his... I want to pause to say this for a moment because I know intimately our church family and those that are present this morning. And I know that this is a very, very... a subject that's close to home for a lot of us. And I, I want to say this. I think that we, our paradigm is broken severely broken. We think that beauty and fame and, and financial prosperity, that these are the things that is the blessed life. And I want to tell you, when a young lady has all this beauty, she becomes way more susceptible to the enemy's fiery darts and to the temptations that, that, that abound in that. And I want to say, I, I, I'm convinced that we call them disabilities. I think God is, gives them as a gift and an ability. I think they're gifts from God. And I think they're meant to, to, for his fame and for his glory. I think of children that are Down syndrome. I think they have an advantage on us. They are way more loving just in their disposition. They are mo way more just sensitive to compassionate. They're the ones that will run and throw their arms around others when, when normal people won't. Guys, I think we've got it backwards. I think disabilities are an advantage, not a disadvantage in God's eyes, because that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is actually saying that you have, you have a gift that I want to use for my glory. And I'm going, and, and I'm going to get to some, some pieces here, ways that we can do this. Listen to what the message says. I thought this was great. This is the message paraphrase. It's not a version. It's just a, someone, uh, Peterson, just kind of giving his perspective on things. Another voice. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Don't you love that? Look, what about what can God do here? Do you know that everything that we have has the potential to glorify God? And the things that we might say are terrible, God, I think, sees differently. And maybe we should too. So I got a question for you. 
How can God be at work in a desperate situation? Is God at work in desperate situations? There may be times when we have, to, we have done things possible. Excuse me. There may be times when we have done everything possible to solve a problem. Don't miss this. After we have explored the options, exhausted our resources, probed our motives, asked for advice, and done whatever was suggested, we, we may have found that nothing seems to have changed. We may have persisted in prayer and asked others to pray for us and yet received no answer. The truth is the solution, resolution, or answer may not even come in this life or ever come. But it is also true that regardless of our difficulty and whether or not our burden is removed, God is still at work. And I'm going to give you four ways that he can work through these, these circumstances. Please, please hear this. God may be using our experience to help advise and encourage others who pass through the same trials. Number two, God may use our suffering to break through the hardness of another person and bring about change in them. God may use our unresolved need to motivate others to keep searching for a solution from which others will benefit. God may use, and I like this, God may use our endurance in suffering rather than the suffering itself to be an encouraging example to other believers. God has glorious purpose in these things. Verse 4 goes on to say, We must work the works of him who sent me. And uh, the Amplified says this, and be busy with his business. I like that. And be busy, because this is what Jesus is getting at here, and be busy with his business. Because most of us are busy with our business, right? Right, or busyness, right? So like, you know, whose, whose business are we on or with or in? While it is day. Now, gee, I'm going to get to the, uh, unpacking that. While it is day. What does he mean by that? Night is coming when no one can work. Okay, first thing I want to unpack here very quickly is that I love, I love, love, love that Jesus says this. Listen to this again. We must work the works of him who sent me. What is he saying here? This is my mission for us to realize. He says we, like we are co-workers, co-laborers. Listen to what John 20, 21 says. Jesus said to them, Right, this is after his, his ascension, I mean, his, uh, his resurrection. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then I love this. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, You are God's field, God's building. In other words, we are the workers that are bringing about your fruitfulness, your harvest, that are building you up. Like this is, this is the, isn't that what Jesus did for us? Isn't it, isn't that what Jesus did for us? He built us up. He, 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 he suffered so that we might be saved. And, and Paul is speaking in that same, in those same terms. Well, the text goes on and says, while it is day, what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus refers to himself in verse five as being the light of the world. So when is it day? When Jesus is in the world, right? That's when it's day, right? It's day as long as the light of the world is here. 
But when the light of the world goes to the cross and dies a, a death in our place and goes in a grave, the light is no longer in the world, right? That's what he's talking about here. While it is day, night is coming. He's referring to his, his sacrifice when no one can work. Now, guys, this is huge. This is huge. What he's saying here is without him, no work of salvation gets done. It doesn't get done, right? Because it says, it says when, when night is coming, when no, work can, when no one can work. We, we don't have the power. We don't have the light to illuminate, to, to, to germinate and, and, and passionate our lives for the work of the ministry. The power of the Holy Spirit is what gets it done. So here's a question. No, I'll get to that. I want to read this first. Convinced and compelled by the Spirit, the disciples were diligent. Because I, I want to speak to this co-laborer piece, right? Like once the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the disciples were convinced and compelled. But I want to ask a question. What if they weren't? Why were they so driven? Why did Paul display such urgency? It's the fate of the world. <laughs> Jesus said, you'll finish what I start. You'll do even greater things than me. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Like, but he's saying, you're going to get it done. In fact, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, he says, you are the light of the world. Now, I want you to understand that in context that we're only the light the way that the, the moon has light, right? The, loon, the moon doesn't have any light in of itself. It's just a reflection of the sun, right? We're just a reflection of the sun, right? And the more that he gets our attention, I always think about this. When, when a moon is full, it's because it's, it's got the, the sun's attention, right? No, the, the sun has its attention. Do you see what I'm saying? And so when, when, when Christ has our full attention, our full focus, then the byproduct of that, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. You know, that, that's just how it works. It's something that he does. And without his light, no one's getting saved. There's no work getting done. He's, he, is the, he is the power source. He is the illumination. He is, Jesus is the light of the world. But then he, we, this we thing that hits me in verse 4, he he lets us be fellow workers with him in this ministry. He lights up our lives so that we can light up the world. Guys, folks come to me all the time like, man, my, my context is so dark, man. Like, man, it's so difficult. Like, things are rough. I mean, have you looked at Jesus' life? Have you looked at Paul's life? I mean, that's not the gauge of, of, of abundant life. Abundant life is an internal work that God does in the midst of calamity. We have peace. In the midst of pain, we have joy. This is what the, 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 the Spirit wants to produce in us so that we become the light of the world. How does, how does the world, how does our life get lit up with Jesus? By being a reflection, not of me, but of Him. When I reflect Him in the pain, when I reflect Him in the chaos, when I reflect, and that means that I've got to give Him my full attention. Does that make sense? I've got to give him my attention in the most, because it's our tendency when things are good, we kind of do our own thing. When things are bad, we're kind of like in our foxhole. But man, we're just wanting out rather than for God to do something glorious in it. And that's how, it, that's how we then come to understand how disabilities are not disabilities, they're abilities. Guys, look, please understand, how many people come into this world 
not thoroughly broken. We're, are we all born spiritually blind? Are we all born with disabilities? Isn't everybody disabled? Some of them are visual. Some of them are not. But we come, until Jesus gets a hold of our lives, until we surrender to his love and lordship, we will never experience the healing that we're so desperate for. He's the light of the world. That's good news. That is awesome. So the fate of the world is at stake, and that's what brings this urgency to go out there and be a light. And guys, when does a light shine its brightest? In the darkest of context. Man, don't run from dark moments. Realize that you're appointed to them. But the only way that you shine is by keeping your vision and your focus and your gaze fixed on him. This is, this is the key. This is the antidote. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. That basically means stay at home, reside with me. Commentary says this, Jesus' words held a note of urgency. It may be day now, but it won't always be so. And this is for us today. We must not put off until tomorrow what God wants to do now. Today is the day of salvation. If God presents an opportunity and also provides the strength, skill, and other resources to do it, we ought to respond immediately. The night is coming soon enough. Then our day, our opportunity will end. Guys, we've been given the opportunity to, to finish what Jesus has started. Like, think about it. Like, okay, I want to say it this way. Um, so Jesus is the light of the world, and now we're the light of the world, a reflection of him, right? But here's, here's how it gets very, very practical, is that who are we to Jesus now as the, as the church? We're the bride, but we're the body of Christ, right? So Jesus is tangibly continuing to, to, to light the way for others, right, through our hands and our hearts and our feet and our mouth, right? Like he is this, 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 we are his body. Do you get that? Like he's the mind now and he's multiplied himself in the church and now we're meant to be the light of the world. And that's our mission. There isn't another one. If you are a nurse, you're a missionary to the hospital. Like we have to understand that every context we're in is a mission field that we're appointed to shine light. And this is the only impact that will matter in eternity. Does that, does that, does that ring true? It's the only thing that's going to matter in eternity. Man, listen, who goes and invests in, in the stock market or real estate or whatever going, oh, well, it'll only last a couple days. Man, that is foolish, right? Like it's going to just vape. It's going to vanish and vape. But that's what we do when we, when we store up treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy and thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart abides is also, it says. So today is the day of salvation. Question, what are you doing with eternity in mind? What are you doing in your life that is aimed at being the light of the world? being this glorious expression of Christ's love, liberty, and life to those around you. This is, and it's not our work, it's his. That's, that takes the, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Like Jesus said, look, I'm going to get it done. Do you want to be a part of it? Because this is going to matter in eternity. 
What are you doing with eternity in mind? Listen to what Jesus says here. As long as I am, this, this emphasizes what we just talked about in verse 4. As long as I am in the world, Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So is Jesus in the world today? Is he? Where? In us. Guys, like, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Like, Jesus is still the light of the world, and you're the body of Christ in order to see that, that realized. That's, that's, that's invigorating to me. Brian brought this up in, um, in study this morning. I want to share this. This is uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. Listen to what this says. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep. That means waste our lives. Forget the urgency of the gospel as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. You are the light of the, you are children of light, children of the day. (laughs) Doesn't that just illuminate what he's saying here? It's awesome. We are the light of the world. Isaiah 29, 18, pointing back to the, 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 the prophets and pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. It says, in that day, speaking of Jesus's term on earth, um, Emmanuel, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, shall see. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with, with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the, in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, and Avi says, home seeing, came back home seeing. These waters may symbolize the work of Jesus, the sent one, but what we must fully realize is they provide the deliverance of healing sent by God, illustrating the full deliverance from sin that Jesus alone provides for us. And then verses 8 through 11 as we wrap up here. The neighbors, so now keep in mind, he's come back now, and this guy that we don't know how old he is, but blind from birth, old enough to be sitting on the side of a road begging, and now he comes back home seeing, right? You can imagine his excitement, his enthusiasm. It says the neighbors and those around, uh, those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, and I I thought this was pretty funny. He kept saying, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. No, I don't think that's how he was saying it. I think what he was trying to say is, no, no, I'm I'm that guy, right? I'm the guy. No, I'm not a lookalike here. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? Then he answered, the man called Jesus It's interesting. Only in the Gospel of John, 12 times is Jesus referred to as a man called Jesus. And it's interesting that this is the Gospel that points out the deity of Christ. Fully God, fully man, Emmanuel, right? And it says, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, "Go go to Salome and wash. So I went, obedience to God's word, right? And washed and received my sight, Okay, so the worship team's coming now, and I, I, wanna, I just want to give you kind of a teaser for next week. Rob's going to be preaching through the balance of this chapter, 
And uh, this teaser is something that the Lord kind of revealed to me as I was, I had to read the whole chapter, obviously, and study through it for the context. But listen to the progression of this guy's faith in Jesus, okay? So he said, the man called Jesus, right? In verse 11. Look at verse 17. So they said again to to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. There's a progression here right? Next verse, we see him describing Jesus says, John, and this is verse 33, he says, this man, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then I love the final description he gives, the final statement he makes about Jesus. After Jesus comes to him, he says in verse 38, he said, Lord, he calls him Lord, Master, King, I believe and his response, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Verse 12 said, and they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. My close is this, and please hear this. This is the, this is the, the encapsulation of this particular text for me. From this point on, the formerly blind man began to see more clearly who Jesus was, while the Pharisees became more spiritually blind. While sin does not cause the man to be born blind, sin did cause the Pharisees blindness. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.